This is In Hindsight, Half a Century of Research Discoveries in Canadian History, presented by Dr. Donald B. Smith and produced by the Ontario Historical Society. pleasure today to talk in episode 15 about a very good friend of mine, Hugh Dempsey. Hugh Dempsey has made an enormous contribution to historical studies in Alberta and in Western Canada, and so with great relish and enthusiasm, I begin this episode on my friend. The first time I heard Hugh speak, I can give you an exact date, was in June 1974, at the University of Toronto. I was still a graduate student, but I just received word a couple of weeks before that I had obtained an appointment at the University of Calgary and that I would be paid to do my hobby. That is, I'd be paid to teach Canadian history. Wonderful. So I was quite high. And it's still June, I would go west in August. But um, I went to the Canadian Historical Association. They had their annual meeting in Toronto. And I attended. There was a very interesting panel on what we call now Indigenous history. Then it would be called Native history. And uh, I attended. And the panel, uh, Hugh Dempsey was a member uh, of the panel. And he was asked to speak about his book, Crowfoot which had just come out uh, two years before. Uh, Crowfoot is the story of this amazing Blackfoot or Siksika chief, who was an orator, a uh, wonderful orator, uh, uh, diplomat, uh, and, uh, and a peacemaker. And, as well, the foremost spokesperson of the Blackfoot Confederacy at Treaty 7 for Southern Alberta. This man is major. So Hugh had done a biography, and my goodness, I'll tell you a little bit more about that biography later in the episode. But for the moment, I was blown away. Here was a gentleman who was speaking about Aboriginal topic, an Indigenous topic, from the inside. His work was based on an enormous amount of research, documentary, that's what I'm familiar with, but complemented by oral, oral stories, evidence. It's extraordinary. It was full bone. It was absolutely just a breath of fresh air. I was so inspired and now uh, delighted that I would be going to Calgary and have could get to know Hugh Dempsey. And certainly I did once I arrived that f- in, in August. And uh, Hugh became a very close friend. He gave many guest lectures to my class, particularly in the early days when I was, what, what do we say, green as a cucumber. I didn't know the Western situation too well. My focus had been on Ontario and Central Canada, Ontario and Quebec, and here I am in Western Canada. Well, Hugh helped me enormously. Gave a number of guest lectures. He'd come. I can just see it in my mind. He would show up, always graciously accept, and his his notes would come on an envelope. He'd have this speaking notes on just an envelope, and boy, would it be good. He just students loved it. Well, Hugh helped me then with my knowledge of Western Canadian, well, not just Indigenous, but also non-Indigenous subjects. He'd already been the editor of Alberta History for years and um, would continue to do so, and I'll also return to that in a minute. Well, Hugh helped me then with my lectures. He helped me with Longlands, Chief Buffalo Child Longlands, well, 
we talked about him in episode four. Well, he was the one that directed me to George Goodrum, a friend of his. George had been the Indian agent on the Blackfoot or Siksika Reserve in the 1920s, and he was very useful. And also Mike Eaglespeaker, who was a blood or Kainai uh, First Nations person who had known Longlance very well, in, also in the 1920s. Now, that really was terrific. But it wasn't just that. Hugh helped me with writing tips. And um, over the first number of years, <laughs> I certainly, oh, he was, I think I, he gave me the best advice of all early in the game. That was, I was doing my text without putting the footnotes in immediately. I'd always, uh, my idea was to come back and do the footnotes after I had the text. Hard part was getting the text together, I thought. Well, he advised, listen, uh, just put the footnotes in as you go or just a rough sketch of them or something because it's torturous if you don't do it right away. Well, that's true. And I, I've altered my, my system and uh, footnotes, rough guide to them went in on the manuscript. And that, that saved me a lot of hassle, a lot of troubles later. Uh, the other rule was that you shared with me was what I call it, but you didn't call it this. I call it, I call it the 95% rule. And that was, he was, he was a seasoned gladiator to this point. He'd done a number of books and certainly a huge number of articles. Hugh said that when you get uh, you, you, the time to write, the time to act is when you get about 95% of the information and don't worry about the last 5% because that is so torturous. The job should be begun. Uh, so whenever you get near what he, you know, this is just conversational, 95% of the information you can possibly ever anticipate getting, start writing. Good advice. Really, I owe a great deal to him for these writing tips. Well, let's step back a bit now. How did this gentleman, who you're going to be hearing about in the next few minutes in this accompaniment of the oral text, of course, is always supplemented by a written text. And in my episode notes here on, on the web, the, the text for this episode, I'll, I'll, I describe this in full detail. This this is on the oral presentation will be abridged, but the full meal deal quote will be in the written text, which accompanies episode 15. So what the greatest influence in Hugh's early life is it's very important because um, he, he wrote it, he's written his autobiography, Always an Adventure. It came out, well, some years back, maybe. And it's it's a gold mine. And from his autobiography, it's quite clear that the greatest influence on him as a young fellow, as a young boy, was his mother, who was a war bride. She was English, born in England, and married um, Hugh's father, a soldier, Canadian soldier. Um, they came to Canada after World War One, and farmed uh, at a place called Edgerton, which is, well, not within the shooting range of Edmonton. And so they started in central Alberta farming. Um, the tough life, really, really. And she was English. She was not used to this way of life. Uh, eventually, after uh, some years, actually, when Hugh was five, Hugh was born in 1929. And after his birth, um, when he, was about, he was about five at the time, the family moved into Edmonton and left the farm. Now, Hugh at school, he was, a, he was good in, in certain subjects, he, the ones that he liked. English, social studies, and art. He was an honor student in those three disciplines. But 
The rest was sort of indifferent. Is that the best word? So Hugh didn't finish high school. It's extraordinary. This giant of Alberta history, Canadian historical writing, only has only had grade eleven. He he left school uh, in in his the the grade twelve year. He didn't. He just he wanted to get out in the world and do things. And he searched around a bit. There were some false starts, but eventually he found it. He found his calling, and it came through. There's a, a venerable Alberta newspaper in Edmonton. Actually, the first newspaper in Edmonton was the Edmonton Bulletin. It was still functioning, and Hugh applied there, and he got he got he got taken on as a copy boy. Well, this guy was good. He had a he was a natural writer, really, and 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 had this enthusiasm and this this eye for a story that he rose from copy boy to reporter and um, right up the ranks to provincial editor at age twenty one. Provincial editor at the Edmonton Bulletin, extraordinary. Well, that's the good news. The bad news is the Edmonton Bulletin folded, so he reaches the top and then the paper folds and he's got to look for another job. Well. At the Bulletin, though, he had several years there, and they were instructive, uh, very good years. And, well, he explained to me what, what he did learn that first little run with journalism. He learned the importance of the opening sentence. He also learned the value of being concise. And those two qualities of popular writing, he conveyed to me. So I'm a great beneficiary. <laughs> After the Bolton, Hugh got a job as a publicity writer for the Alberta government, and he was there for three or four years. Had a, and this was this was a government job, so um, it was enjoyable. Had uh, well, sort of a little bit more what I wanted, but at the it was good, and he learned more writing skills and had an opportunity to uh, publish some quite a few things, um, uh, journalists, just articles. But uh, anyways, he's he's on his way, and um, another development when he's with the Alberta government, um, or, or sorry, it was at the Bulletin actually, just before the Bulletin folded, uh, he was asked to attend an Indian Association of Alberta meeting in Edmonton. And he, he really didn't have too much uh, background on that topic at this point, Indigenous subjects, not at all. Well, sure, lucky though, he went to that meeting because there he met the president's daughter, <laughs> James Gladstone, a very attractive young woman, Pauline, Pauline Gladstone. And well, that that was wonderful. That was that was his turning point. My gosh. Well, Pauline and Hugh got on like a house on fire. Uh, Pauline was very popular with Hugh's parents, and Hugh was very popular with Pauline's, and in particular her father, who loved to talk about history. And her father, James Gladstone, was he was a Blackfoot speaker. He uh, very competent. He's a farmer, a rancher, a very competent individual. Uh, spoke excellent English, as well as he could speak the old Blackfoot. Uh, and he was interested in history, and he was very well um, integrated in the community. And, and um, very important in the Indian Association of Alberta. This was a wonderful contact. Now, what I like about Hugh is, uh, well, what it, it, his autobiography is really good, but there's also other snippets and other of his publications, of his background and, and whatnot. There's a wonderful quote that I think uh, best enters here. Uh, incidentally, Hugh and Pauline were married in 1953. After uh, they, they just uh, were so compatible and 
I mean, I two thirds of a century they were together. Hugh passed away, I should point out, last May. So, well, Hugh learned it just incredible. He learned so much. He was just he was an insider. Now he was part of the Gladstone family, and here's what he says. Actually, just uh, actually, he he did a biography of his father-in-law in 1986. It's called The Gentle Persuader. And that's where this wonderful quote comes from. And I, I want to just share it with you. It, it is just uh, so, so evocative. Here's Hugh. Gentle Persuader, page 141. Quote, I had become part of a close-knit extended family of brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, and people whose exact relationship was uncertain. That is a wonderful thing about Indian families. Bloodlines are less important than a mutual acceptance of someone as family. Well, through the Gladstone family, Hugh gained an entry into the First Nations world, one completely unknown to most non-Indigenous Albertans. Pauline noted of her husband, I noticed Hugh's mind was like a sponge. Not only were people willing to share their knowledge with him, but they were fascinated that someone was interested in hearing their stories and reminiscing with them. <laughs> so yeah, he was on his way. My on the on the route, though, there were many misunderstandings. In his own words, Hugh at first didn't know his way around. And I there's a number of instances. His, his autobiography is full of them, and my text has uh, several. But I just time presses and we'll just I just have time really to give you one it's Hugh learned for example that every there's protocols and uh, even at a powwow uh, there were protocols for couples uh, for in the owl dance at the powwow there, there's certain rules he didn't know this of course I wouldn't have known either but the three rules were the following women asked the men to dance the men could not refuse and wives could not dance with their husbands. Well, it's just, there's all kinds of other factors uh, as well. And uh, the, 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 there's an etiquette and all uh, oh, people learning this in spades. It's just wonderful. Well, the more, well, let's say what's, what's the best word in a really a, a bureaucratic way, he learned something as well. Hugh learned firsthand after he married Pauline how the Canadian government had divided many First Nations families. Their wedding had led them into the complications of the Federal Indian Act. When my wife married me, Hugh said in a 1961 interview, she legally became no longer an Indian. At the same time, her brother married a white girl, and the girl legally became an Indian. This gives us a situation where my wife who was raised on the blood reserve and speaks the language fluently, is not an Indian. But her sister-in-law, who was raised in a white community and does not speak the language, is legally an Indian. This is extraordinary, isn't it? The Indian Act, by the way, was only altered in 1985 to correct this injustice. Well, Hugh, um, they had a, well, Hugh and Pauline, just a, Wonder sensational marriage. They had five children and they were really busy. Oh, understandably, five children. And he's got a big job because I should tell you, he had got a new position in um, 
he left the government of Alberta when a new position came up as archivist at the newly established Glen Bow Foundation. And Hugh moved uh, with Bowling. They moved to Calgary uh, around 1955, and Hugh began his work. And he would begin as an archivist and then go right up to the top, right up to uh, curator, curator then and director of the Glenbow Foundation, the huge institution in Calgary. So, But he starts as an archivist and uh, collected all kinds of wonderful things for future historians of Alberta, photos, uh, manuscripts, um, just cornucopia of goodness. So he's busy then at the Arca- at the Glenbow, um, and Pauline, the, the five children eventually at home. And uh, But one rule, family comes first. Hugh would do his writing on vacation and not in family time. Just extraordinary. What a balanced position. Well, when he was with the Glenbow Foundation, oh, I should point out, oh, good story. Can't, can't leave out a good story. I had an old First Nations friend who told me that it's important when you're writing to put raisins in the dough. Put some anecdotes in. Live it up. <laughs> That's what I'll do because I can't leave this one alone. Hugh did think of enrolling at at the University of Alberta and doing a degree. And this is fun. This was um, actually just before he moved from Edmonton. Possibility was there that he might just go and go to the University of Alberta and uh, finish getting a degree and all seems good. He'd already begun a correspondence with Jack Ewers, who was the ethnologist at the Smithsonian. Imagine this, a young man in his early 20s who was so enthusiastic about indigenous topics, he began a conversation with one of the world's great experts at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. His name was Jack Ewers. And Jack, they had a terrific correspondence. Um, I mean, Jack, what a good guy. I mean, he's a senior, senior, senior academic, and he's corresponding with this young chap, um, and uh, and Hugh shares with him that he was thinking of, of, of doing this, getting his BA uh, at, at University of Alberta. But Jack advised him against it. Uh, don't quit your government job. The respected Great Plains scholar wrote his young friend, quote, I believe that you are now much better qualified to make something out of anthropology than the average person entering college with a yen to become an anthropologist. Your published work would show that. Wow, what an endorsement. Well, this is he's got a great sense of humor. This is what he says in the autobiography. In any case, as Hugh points out in his autobiography, he never had to decide about his best course of action. It all became academic when the University of Alberta indicated it had no desire to accept a high school dropout into its ranks. <laughs> I just love that line. Well, now Glenbow. Now the Glenbow was it was a great a great time because they 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 supported him. They they encouraged him to to uh, do interviews in the communities and and this is good public relations. Also, it led to um, good connections and uh, what have you. Uh, and so they encouraged him with his his writing. And well, Hughes' father in law is a perfect person. Hughes' interest was in the Blackfoot Confederacy. The well, other interests too, but primarily in the indigenous field, it was the Blackfoot. Um, and there are three nations, I should point out. There's the Blackfoot or Siksika. Uh, there's the Bigani. And then there is the Bloods or Kana. And Pauline was a Kana or Blood. And so that's that's the main group of the Confederacy that he's interested in. Well, what he decided to, and, and well, we started with this talk I heard in 1974. He started 20 years, almost 20 years before, to begin assembling notes 
for his biography of Crowfoot. Crowfoot is the book that he talked about in Toronto in June of 1974. It just came out two years earlier. And it, it's a terrific book. Um, he did the manuscript. Jack Ewers encouraged him. And um, he finished it. Um, that's the good news. Bad news. Couldn't get a publisher. He sent it off to publishers uh, in those days, mainly in Toronto, and back it came. Advice? Cut it by two-thirds. Make it a children's book. Oh, how insulting. Well, Hugh put it back in the drawer, and it, there it would stay for over a decade. Just unbelievable. The indifference and the ignorance of Indigenous subjects. Well, who published it? University of Oklahoma Press in 1972. I see the influence of Jack Ewers there. He tipped them off. And the University of Oklahoma Press, very distinguished press for Indigenous topics, they, they brought it out in 1972. And then uh, the wonderful publisher in Edmonton, uh, Hertig, just starting out, they bought the rights for Canada. And the book was in circulation 1972 on. Two years later, I hear him, I heard you speak about it at, at University of Toronto, at the Canadian Historical Association. So that was it. That broke the logjam. He's on his way. We have now an established writer. And every year, almost every year, after 1972, he would publish a book on an indigenous or non-indigenous subject. Subject, A special interest of his deserves a tip of the hat, and that was in Bob Edwards. It's Hugh is doing more than none in, in indigenous history. He also does non-indigenous history. And a particular topic that he loved was Bob Edwards, who was a very controversial editor, who wrote a public, he wrote a newspaper, the most popular newspaper in Alberta in the early 19. Century in the early 20th century, the earliest, the most popular was Bob Edwards, the Eye Opener, and he wrote two books on Bob Edwards. He loved his humor, and and it was real social satire. Uh, Edwards' books, uh, they they he, he just for the non-indigenous side. These are the best. It's the best entry point, really, for Calgary in the early 20th century to look at the Eye Opener. Other books followed. Now this mainly on the indigenous side. Um, almost uh, really, um, well, I'd say, well, I don't want to put a percentage to it, but most are Indigenous books that are, that come forward. The two Bob Edwards books and other topics, but particularly Indigenous. The 1978 one is a is a real barn burner. It's it's called Charcoal's World, and um, Charcoal's World is is an extraordinary story of a blood Indian who was caught in a cultural uh, situation of a horrible cultural situation, and Hugh this this top this book of his it's it's his second major book. Char uh, Crawford's the first. Charcoal's World is the second, and it really has popular interest. I'll, I'll give you a brief synopsis, but honestly, we unfortunately uh, the text. Please, after this audio, go to the text. <laughs> it's more, much more full bodied than than one can do in a in a really an interview, which is what these audios are. Well, anyways, Charcoal's World focuses on a Kanai holy man who shot and killed his wife's lover in 1896 and became a fugitive. Charcoal had found them in the act of adultery. As Hugh wrote, quote, the white men who ruled their lives said it was wrong to do these things. The police had the guns, they had the rope, they had the power. Even to kill a fornicator who had 
broken the written rules of the tribe was now wrong. The Indian laws meant nothing. Only the white man's laws counted. When he had violated these, Charcoal knew he would soon die. And then he gets into um, this whole, the First Nation side of things, into the spirit world. And Charcoal resolved to kill an important person whose spirit would announce his coming to prepare them for, in the spirit world, for his arrival. For months, Charcoal eluded police patrols, thwarting attempts to entrap him. He did kill one of his pursuers. And that was the end of it. He killed Mountie. And now he is a most wanted individual. Just understatement of the year. And they're out to get find him. And they do. And Charcoal, they, they, he's captured and executed. So it's been a great intercultural story. More books follow. Uh, Red Crow, that's, well, if you want to give the old categories, this would be the third big one. Red Crow is a study of a very important blood or Kainai chief and, and who was a signatory treaty seven. And uh, really, he was more of a soldier than Crowfoot. He was more of a military man, but it's a great book. Um, after Big Bear comes Gentle Persuader, his biography of his father-in-law, James Gladstone. Uh, we're moving along here. History of Calgary, 1994. All the way along, he's helping others. I mean, honestly, family, job, and helping others. And I know that intimately because how he helped me. I was writing on the Steinhauers, the Steinhauer family. And um, this is a chapter in my book, Mississauga Portraits, which came out um, 2013. I have a chapter on the Steinhauers, uh, particularly on Robert and Edgerton, who were... Um, College educated, uh, well, Robert was college educated and uh, Edgerton had uh, high school. Very phenomenal backgrounds for First Nations people from from Alberta in the late 19th century, most extraordinary individuals. Well, what Hugh gave me, and this is this is just, I just have to, my, my good luck. I got an intimate view of Robert and Edgerton, the two sons of a famous Indian missionary, um, Henry B. Steinhauer. These are his two sons, Robert and Edgerton. And I, from... Hugh, I got this wonderful text. It was a he in 1956. Here he is, young guy, mid 20s, at a meeting of the Historical Society of Alberta, and he took notes and typed them up on what Ralph Steinhauer said about his two uncles. Ralph's uncles were Robert and Edgerton, and Hugh took these. He's, he's a consummate researcher and recorder. Wonderful notes, which I able was able to take what Ralph, who became Lieutenant Governor of Alberta in the mid-1970s, Ralph's memories of his two uncles. And they, they, they showed the, the inner side of these taps. And they, were, they became Christian ministers, both of them, but they're very, very proud First Nations individuals. It's extraordinarily rich. Well, how did I get that? Through Hugh, through his kindness. That's just one example. Others could provide a multitude of others. Just sharing. Our culture, our culture is sharing, as is often said in the indigenous world. So he helped others enormously. Okay, now, getting near the end. Uh, more books coming. The Great Blackfoot Treaties. Oh, this important book about a, a Cree. He did Big Bear. And then another one on a, on a Cree leader, um, Maspatoon, that came out um, it just uh, well, early 21st century. Uh, and... Also, but the big one is 
the Blackfoot Treaties. And the Blackfoot Treaties book came out in 2016. My goodness, it's just, well, less than a decade ago. It's a very, very important work on a subject which he focused on for, well, all those, all his, all his life, really, the Blackfoot Treaties, ever since he became interested in Indigenous topics. Now, time for an overview. Well, very, very revealing quote. This is my good friend, George Melnick, who's the author of The Literary History of Alberta, two volumes. He interviewed Hugh in 1995 and asked him about his view of history and all. And Hugh replied, he saw himself as a writer who has entered the field of history. I tried not to be an academic writer. When you write something, you should try to communicate to your audience, whoever that audience happens to be. There's his goal. Wonderful quote in George Melnick's Literary History of Alberta. It says so much for this dedicated Albertan's commitment to his province's history that he edited the magazine that originated as the Alberta Historical Review, later becoming Alberta History, for 63 years. <laughs> Let me repeat that. Guinness Book of World Records, are you listening? Editor of an academic journal for two-thirds of a century. His remarkable tenure as editor only ended at age 91 with his retirement after the publication of the autumn 2020 issue. Hugh Dempsey added so much to our understanding of Alberta's heritage as a researcher, editor, writer, and archivist. He has rescued many aspects of our history by collecting historical manuscripts and photos and by recording the oral members of First Nations, or the oral memories of First Nations people and non-Indigenous Albertans. He has written 22, that's by my count, full-length books, and edited another 17. What a career. What a contribution to Albertans' knowledge of their past. The Dean of Alberta Historians passed away in May 2022. Thank you.